rest of us will be in Mark chapter 1, Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, and we will just have two verses that we will cover, but we will be uh, kind of all over the place in terms of other passages to try to develop this and understand what is going on here in Mark chapter 1. So I ask you to go ahead and turn there, and I'll read the passage, and we'll pray, and then we will get started this morning. Mark 1, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for this time, which is specifically set aside for your word and to study it and to hear you speak to us. Jesus tells us in John 10 that he speaks and his sheep hear him. So we pray that the Good Shepherd would speak and that we, his sheep, would hear and we would follow, we would delight, and we would obey, and we would honor him. Help us to have more of a grasp of the greatness of Jesus Christ this morning that comes from your word, as shown by your spirit, that ultimately magnifies Christ and gives glory to you, our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not unusual at the beginning of a presidential term for the news media to begin to ask some questions about how the incoming president will do, specifically when he is encountering his first uh, trial or first bit of resistance. When the first challenges come against President Obama, how will he handle it? That was much of what made the news stories the first hundred days, even the days between the first, uh, last President Bush's presidency and the transition to President Obama. How will this president handle the threat abroad? How will he handle threats internally? How is he going to stand up and what type of leader is he going to be? It's always been that way when new leaders come in, especially from the people that are under his charge or under his care. We want to know what type of leader, what type of king, what type of president they will be. It's like that in the Bible as well. If you read the Old Testament, you might ask the question, who is the great king of Israel? Most of us would agree that the great king in the Bible is King David. He's the king who did the most for Israel, for God, and for his people. And when you look at the beginning of King David's anointing and his, his reign as the king, you have to go to 1 Samuel 16. And that's when you might remember Samuel, the prophet of God, is coming and he is going to anoint the new king of Israel. And he goes through all the sons because the Lord has said it's going to be from the son of Jesse. And he goes through all the sons and eventually they get to the youngest son, which isn't even there. He's out dealing with the sheep in the field. And he gets called back in and, and there is Samuel and he's going to say, the Lord says, this is the one. So the Lord says, this is my king right here, David. And what, is, what does Samuel do? But he anoints him. And 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, the spirit rushes upon David, anointing him as the king. And then we come to the end of chapter 16 and we say, okay, what type of king is David going to be? 
How is he going to handle adversity? How is he going to be with respect to God and his people? How is he going to be? What, what type of ruler is he going to be? And most of our children, we'd be able to say, what's the big story in David's life? And you go to the next chapter, chapter 17, and you have a big story. David versus Goliath. Immediately, the writer in Samuel is going to show us how this new king is going to deal with adversity. Because here is Goliath, the great adversary to the people of God, belittling God, belittling God's people, holding them captive in his hand, mocking them, mocking God, standing in the gap as you were, daring people to come, just mocking them and mocking the God of Israel. And you come into chapter 17, you say, oh my goodness, how is this king going to handle this? As young as he is. It's no accident that chapter 17 comes after 16 because you ask that question, how is he going to handle it? Is he going to be different than King Saul who was frankly somewhat of a wimp that was hiding behind the luggage in this day of his coronation? Or is he going to be strong? Is he going to come and he's going to deal justly? Is he going to be a man after God's own heart? Is he going to go against the enemy of God's people and defend the people of God? Is he going to be able to stand up to that great enemy face to face and put him down and deal a mighty blow for God and for his people? Can he do it? And we know the story, right? David goes and gets five smooth stones and comes face to face full of zeal and passion for the glory of God and the freedom of his people. And he slings one of those stones right into the forehead of the giant. And he falls. He dies. And David's not done. He goes and he cuts off the head of the great giant with a sword, thereby showing he is the victorious king. How is he going to rule? He is going to be a one that defends the glory and honor of God, defends the people of God, advances the kingdom of God. He's going to be a ruler. And by and large, that's what type of king David is, isn't he? You read the rest of the Old Testament. David is a warrior. In fact, he is, he is prohibited from setting up the temple. He's not able to build a house for God as we learn at the end of his life. Why? Because he's a man of bloodshed. So it is indicative for what type of king he would be. We come to the gospel according to Mark. And we ask the question, what type of king is Jesus going to be? How is he going to deal with his enemy, God's enemy? How is he going to deal with the people of God? Because that really is the question. The book of Mark asks and answers the question, who is Jesus? Nobody knows. You know who knows who Jesus is in the book of Mark? God the Father, God the Spirit, the prophet of God, the devil, all the demons. And it's not until chapter 15 when you have a centurion, an unbelieving Gentile, look at him and say, there he is. Truly this one was what? The Son of God. Peter has a brief moment in the sun in chapter 8, but you see that it's fleeting. The point is, this is Jesus, the Son of God. That is to say, He is the King. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says, the Son of God. This is the Psalm 2, Son of God. Notice verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's prepare the way of Yahweh, the Lord. Whose way are we preparing? This is God's man. This is God's King. Who is Jesus Christ? We learn right from the beginning. He's the king. So now, just like 1 Samuel 16, we say, what type of king is he going to be? Well, we move through the chapter, and we see the baptism of Jesus, which I, I see as the anointing as the king. Verse 10 says he comes out of the water, and he sees the heavens being opened, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. That is, the Holy Spirit comes on David, and, I mean, comes on Jesus, and anoints him for the ministry. Just like the Holy Spirit rushes upon David, 
for the ministry that he had to do, here the Holy Spirit rushes upon the greater David, the true son of David, for the ministry. And just as the father said, this is the one, Samuel, here the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So you have the anointing of the king by the spirit, you have the coronation of the king as the beloved son, and now you ask the question, what type of king is he going to be? How's he going to deal with God's enemies? How's he going to deal with God's people? How's he going to deal with God? And that sets up the stage for chapter 1, verse 12, when we see him going out into the wilderness to deal with Satan. The danger for us this morning, this is really important, when we study the temptation of Jesus, is for you to say, give me five principles for dealing with temptation. Give me five ways. I want to be like Jesus. Rule number one, don't eat. Rule number two, quote the Bible. Rule number three, what? Give me five rules. That's not the point. If the point of this passage is just to to get principles for dealing with temptation, all you're going to do is go home and say, all right, Eric, I need to muster up the the strength and the, the internal energy so that I can deal with temptation. Because after all, it's me against the devil, just like it was Jesus against the devil. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, this is Jesus, your representative, against the devil, your adversary, and God's adversary. And he triumphs. And this is the beginning of the triumph that goes through the rest of the book of Mark and ultimately culminates with him crushing the head of the serpent on the cross, raising victoriously. And then the Revelation, the book of Revelation concludes with Jesus, the king, there with his people in the new garden, the new Israel. Everything is good. So when you get into this passage this morning, don't allow yourself to say, okay, give me principles of application because then you'll just be relying on yourself and not relying upon Jesus. The main point this morning is that you can live with humble confidence because of the triumph of Jesus. You can be confident because of Jesus. So you walk out here and say, what's the application? Jesus is awesome. He's the king. He's triumph. Therefore, I don't look to myself. I look to Christ. We'll get to more of that as we go. But three questions this morning to help better understand the temptation of Jesus, his wilderness temptation. Really simple. Three questions to ask. Who sent him there? Why was he there? And what's the significance to us as Christians? Who sent him there? Why was he there? And what's the significance? That should be pretty simple. Hopefully that will be clear as we go through it. So the first question this morning, who sent him there? We don't have to go really far in verse 12 to see this. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Who sent him to the wilderness? Right away we see that the answer to that question is what? Who sent him there? The Holy Spirit. We just saw in verse 10 that that's exactly who this is, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that, de- that descends on Jesus. This is very God of God. He, he comes down from heaven like a dove, anointing Jesus as the King. So right away we need to ask the question, who sends him there? It's God that sends Jesus to the wilderness. This is very significant for us this morning in understanding the ministry of Jesus. This doesn't happen, just happen to him like Satan comes to Adam to tempt him. No, Jesus is driven out to the wilderness to deal with Satan by God. And this word that we have here in in our Bibles immediately drove him out. Drove, this this word is is a strong word. It means forcefully expelling or throwing out. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, it's used to describe the casting out of demons, taken out of the individual and casting them out. It's used to describe the way in which the son of the vineyard owner was rejected and thrown out of the vineyard and killed by the slaves in Matthew 21, verse 39. It's also used in, this, in the picture of, of Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 15, when he goes into the temple to cleanse the temple. You remember he makes a scourge, a whip to go in and cleanse the place. 
And what does he do? But he drives out the money changers. And he's not asking them nicely, oh, would you please go? But he's forcefully expelling them from the temple, driving them out with his holy zeal and his whip. So it's a strong word. It's a very strong and intense word. We understand that Jesus was assertively and powerfully led out to the wilderness by God, the Holy Spirit. This is God's will. God wants Jesus in the wilderness. He drives him out there. It's almost like uh, Leviticus 16, when you have the two goats. You guys are familiar with the Day of Atonement, right? Leviticus 16, you have two goats. One goat is going to be slain and his blood is taken into the uh, Holy of Holies, the most holy place to deal with God's wrath. And the other goat is carries the guilt of the people out into the wilderness. And they actually had an escort that would drive the goat into the wilderness to carry the guilt away, right? Here Jesus is driven out into the wilderness in similar fashion. Now, you might be saying, driven out to the wilderness, that, that sounds, like, sounds like a nice time. Thinking maybe Pacific Northwest, you know, maybe get our Birkenstocks on and our wool socks and go for a nice walk. This is nice, relaxing. Wilderness in America, right? Teeming with life, waterfalls, beauty. That's not wilderness motif in the Bible. Wilderness in the Bible means alone. Wilderness in the Bible means curse. Wilderness in the Bible means danger. When you think of wilderness in the Bible, you should probably think of desert. That's the picture we're looking for here. Cracked ground, thorns, thistles, desert. And he's alone. He's to be driven out alone into the wilderness by himself. You might even see Jesus even in a very kind of anticipatory way going out into the place where the curse is most pronounced. Genesis chapter 3, the curse on humanity would be for the, for the wilderness, the desert, that type of picture. The nation of Israel wandered in the book of Numbers where? In the wilderness, right? That's the picture. So what's the significance of this, He drives him into the wilderness. Notice, notice even verse 12, the Spirit immediately. So we see this is Mark's favorite word in the Gospel, probably other than Jesus. He uses this word 11 times in the first chapter alone, this word immediately. And it's the first word that comes right out of this, the preceding session. Immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. It's, it's like saying straight away, right away. The next thing, it's, it's like watching 24. You know, you guys watch 24, anybody? It's like... Quick scenes, right? The typical television in America now is just quick, 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 scene, 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 right? So you're never bored. You're just watching scenes. That's the picture. Right away, this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. And you get done and you're like, (sighs) that's reading Mark chapter 1. It's just immediately, 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 immediately. And right away, this immediately is coming. And it's significant because why? Look what the previous verse is. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. See, this whole scene is gospel, son of God, Psalm 2 king, prepare the way of Yahweh, make his path straight. You are the, the son of God, the Yahweh son of God, the Psalm 2 son. And out of nowhere, he drives him to the wilderness. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd, a little bit strange? You might think that today's Palm Sunday on our calendar. You might think Psalm 2, this should be Palm Sunday, right? Here are all the Jews that are getting baptized by John. This is the beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is what we need to do. We need to lay down the the branches, lay down our coats. Hosanna, son of David. You are the king. Let's have the kingdom. Let's go, right? That's not what happens though, does it? You would expect a chariot ride by the Holy Spirit, not to the wilderness, but to 
Jerusalem. I mean, yeah, to the, to the capital city where the temple is. But that's not what we have. It's like Mark won't even let the water dry in Jesus' baptism. Immediately, out of the water, boom, he's driven out into the wilderness. So, the answer to the first question, who sent him there? It's pretty simple, right? God sent him there. Who sent him there? It was God. Now, we want to ask the question, why? Why was he there? Look again, verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. But Mark gives us, as he usually does, some type, bit of a fairly pruned down description of what happened. If you look at, Mark, at Luke chapter 4 or Matthew chapter 4, we have quite a detailed explanation of what actually goes on here. But Mark is giving us a pruned down, quick moving summary statement of what happens. But here we ask the question again, and I hope this is how you just do your devotions. You ask questions, why, who, when, what, what's the purpose? Ask the Bible questions and let the Bible answer the questions. You ask the question here, who? Who drove him out? It was the Spirit of God. Now we ask the question, why? Why did he get driven out to the wilderness? And he really doesn't give us all of the explanation here. Matthew says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the express purpose. God sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is really strange. Because he's the king and everybody's on board and now all of a sudden he says, time for you to go deal with the enemy. After all, that's who Satan is, right? Satan is the adversary, the enemy of God, the arch enemy of God, the accuser of the brethren, the one who is the, the ultimate angel who has rebelled against God and led a whole host of captives with him. He is referred to as the God of this world by Jesus. He's a bad one, right? He's the devil after all, right? So Jesus is going out to be tempted. You might put it more specifically, he's going out to do battle with the devil. He's going out to fight the devil. He is going out as the, as the representative of God to do battle against the enemy. Think of the undercard on the great battle of God, if you will. David, Goliath. Enemy of God's people, mocking God's people, belittling God's people, and David going out to do battle. Well, in a much more grand way, the greater David against the greater enemy. And here he is driven out by the Spirit of God to go and do battle with Satan himself. We must ask the question, I think, and answer it from two perspectives. Why was he there? We'll ask it from God's perspective, and we'll ask it from our perspective. As a human, and then also as God. Why must he go out from God's perspective? Well, remember the very last verse, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. If he is going to be this king, if he is going to be the anointed king that stands under the banner of well pleased by God, he better be able to go and defeat the one with whom God is not well pleased, right? I mean, what use is a king if he can't rule justly? What use is a king if he can't defeat the enemy of, of God? He's not a figurehead king, he's... A victor, a warrior, a king. In fact, Jesus is, is described in the book of John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I wonder if you think about Jesus in those terms. As the one who's actually come to destroy the work of Satan. Now, if 
If you were asked the question, why did Jesus come to earth and become a man, and as God become man, go live a perfect life and die on the cross, the mission of Jesus, why did he come? You might be tempted to say, to save me from my sins so that I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now that's true, but that's truncated. He did come to save you from your sins so that you would have a personal relationship with Jesus. He did come to live a perfect life in your place and die in your place on the cross. Absolutely. But may I say there's something larger than that, dare I say cosmic, going on here? He is coming for God to go against God's enemy and to defeat him and to destroy him. And in that process of defeating and destroying, to take the captives and set them free. We're part of a much bigger plan than God. A much bigger plan of God than just our personal relationship. Make sense? Because if you believe that the Son of God is going to mediate God's justice upon the earth, if He's going to be the great King that subdues all things into obedience with Himself, then He's got to defeat not only your own rebellious soul, but He's got to defeat the enemy of God, Satan himself. And that's why you see the rest of this book. If we just paused right now and you would say, okay, what goes on in the rest of Mark? What does he immediately do? He goes out and he, he says, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he goes and he starts picking off people that are captive and, and shackled in sin. And he calls Peter out and Andrew out and James and John out. He pulls them in. And then what does he do? He goes after the demons who are indwelling people. And he's pulling them out and calling them. You can't speak. I am the king. Get out of here. In the whole book, he's healing infirmities, he's going after demons, he's healing lepers, he's raising people from the dead, ultimately to show the physical reality of the spiritual truth that he is the divine conqueror and king. He's the ruler. He's defeated the enemy of this world, Satan himself. You've got to know that. It's much bigger than me and you and our personal relationship with Jesus. This is God's representative, the Psalm 2 king. He's God's king. He's God's king. We've got to get that. So from God's perspective, he's going out to the wilderness to stand toe-to-toe with the arch enemy of God. He's going to wrestle the kingdom away from him. And that wrestling goes through the whole gospel scene. He must go out and magnify the law of God. He must go out and demonstrate the power of God. He must go out and reflect the holiness of God. He must go out and lift high the glory of God. He is the representative of God and he must Win. And that's where he goes out for. So from God's perspective, he must go out and win as the king. But now, from man's perspective, for humanity, for men, women, and children, for those who are captives, what's the significance here? Well, you recall the beginning of the Bible, the monumental opening of the Bible. God creates the world. It's perfect. It's good, right? Everything is made is good. In fact, God looks at man and even says, very good. Everything is done is perfect, right, and good. It's designed to rightly reflect Him and to give Him glory and to give Him pleasure and and to enjoy this world that He's made. We're to enjoy one another. We're to enjoy creation. Everything is good. Everything is right. Then what happens? That blasted deceiver comes, doesn't he? He comes slithering about. To come and to tempt Adam and Eve. See, principally, what man is supposed to enjoy of the utmost is fellowship with God Himself. And Satan comes and deceives Adam and Eve and tempts them towards not enjoying God. And that's ultimately what the curse ends up being. They speak words of flattery and deceit to Adam and Eve. 
Today we would call it progressive and liberating, but in any rate, it always has been and always will be regressive and enslaving. Whenever you evaluate, evaluate God on your own standard, judge Him on your own authority, evaluate what is good for you and right for you on your own authority apart from the Word of God, it is always enslaving and it will always lead you to be captive and it will always lead you to be at war with God. It's not progressive and liberating. It's regressive and enslaving. When you look at God and say, you might be like this, you should be like this, I should be like this, I deserve to get that. It's always regressive. God has spoken. He demands to be heard. And what happens? Adam and Eve sin against God. They don't honor Him. They don't submit to Him as King. They disbelieve His promises. Satan begins to put seeds of, of doubt and mistrust in their minds. And the, the minute they begin to evaluate things based on their own thinking, has God really said, now let me think. Has he said that? Did he mean this? Is he keeping something back from me? The day that you shall eat from it, you shall, you shall be like God. Oh, maybe he is keeping. Maybe he's, maybe he's keeping some things for himself. He doesn't want the best for me. Maybe I should listen to Satan. And then the one thing God says, don't eat from this tree, they go and they eat. And all of humanity is plunged into sin from there. They disbelieve God's word. They evaluate God's standard based upon themselves. They rebel against his decree. They establish their own law. They don't honor him. They don't give thanks to him. They profess to become wise and they become what? Fools. And that's sin. And we do the same thing. We rebel against God and his word. And what's the result? Flip on back to Genesis 3. I want you to see it in there. Keep your thumb in Mark 1. We'll be back here in just a second. Genesis chapter 3. It is very important for us to understand Mark 1 in light of Genesis 3. In fact, the whole Bible in light of Genesis 3. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. That's not to say work is the curse. But the fact that the ground is now going to be hostile to man in a, in a representative sense of how man has rebelled against God. Now the ground itself is rebelling against man. Instead of producing fruit beautifully and wonderfully, now we have thorns, thistles, and it's contrary. It's difficult. And now he's going to work against it. Even the woman, instead of the joyful submission and love for her husband, says your desire will be for your husband, which is actually a desire, like chapter 4 says, to rule over your husband. So the harmony of the, the, harmony of the relationship is now corrupted. It's part of the curse. And everything, even the creation, as Romans 8 says, is subjected to futility. It's part of the curse. So we have hurricanes, tornadoes, and all kinds of storms. It's not because of God's design initially, but because of man's sin and God's curse upon his creation. It's his just judgment. You might say Genesis 3 is a crime scene. The crime is not humanity on humanity, but ultimately humanity against God. And we look at this chapter and it's in many ways hopeless. But in the midst of the crime scene, you have hope. 
God's judging the humanity in the earth, judging even Satan himself. But in the midst of that, you have hope. You have a promise for relief and deliverance. Did you notice that even as we read through it? There's a promise for relief. There's a promise for victory and deliverance through it. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, he's talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, that's Eve, and between her offspring, that's all the descendants of Eve, and your offspring. There's going to be a battle going. He, that is the ultimate offspring, shall bruise your head, crush your head. That's victory talk. And you shall bruise his heel. That means you're going to hurt him, but not a knockout. But he will knock you out. He will crush you. In the midst of it, there's a promise of crushing the enemy. There's a promise that he will, this descendant of Eve will come and break the neck of the serpent. He will stand upon him and crush him. That's the promise. In the midst of a dirge and a funeral, there's a promise of hope. And the whole Bible flows out of this. God has promised hope. He's promised victory. You might say, how well did they they take it? How well did they believe? Well, you read right out of this passage, they go, and the immediate reaction is Adam and Eve are endeavoring to be intimate, to, to have children, so that they might have the one that's going to come and crush them. They figured, hey, we need to get back to paradise. So the way this comes is through Eve having a child, so let's have some children that will come and crush the head of the serpent. But we know how that goes in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. One brother kills the other. Things get worse and worse. And finally you see Noah come and they say, maybe this is the one that will give us rest. So they name him Noah, which means rest. And he gives some temporal rest through the, the flood, but not the ultimate rest. And now there's anticipation, anticipation, anticipation through the old, whole Old Testament. Who is this one, this descendant of Eve, who's going to come, who's going to bring relief, who's going to come and crush the serpent, who's going to set up the kingdom of God on earth, who's going to be the one that's going to do it? And then you flip all all the way. Flip all the way to Luke. You can go ahead and leave Genesis and make your way to Luke chapter 2. We're taking some very serious, lots of stuff, and we're trying to take it quickly. So we're we're going fast. This is 30,000 feet. But just know the theme coming out of the Old Testament is hope, 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 hope. And what's the hope? Crushing the serpent. Setting up the kingdom. Promises of God fulfilled. And you make it to Luke. And that's the whole Old Testament, hoping, hoping, hoping. And we know that because we see in, in Jesus being presented at the temple. Here he is, he's born, and he comes, and they're going to do what the law tells them to do, is to come and present Jesus in the day of purification according to the law of Moses, chapter 2, verses 22 and following. And there's this guy in verse 25 named Simeon. And notice what it says. He was righteous and devout. He was the, the picture of the Psalm 1 man. The one who did the law of God, obeyed the law, and he was anticipating. Notice what it says, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means he's waiting for this promise, articulated over and over and over again in the Old Testament in various ways and more specific ways. But ultimately, he's waiting for the child of Eve to come and crush the serpent and set up the kingdom. It says that the Holy Spirit had revealed it to him that he wouldn't see death, verse 26, until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And imagine that. He came in the Spirit, verse 27, in the temple. And when the parents brought up the child, he grabs Jesus and picks him up and says, this is the one. He starts quoting Old Testament prophecies. Imagine Mary and Joseph. Oh, my goodness. This place is packed with people. And God shows that's the one. And it, does, it gets better. And chapter 2 keeps going. This is Lady Anna, verse 36. 
She's a widow. She's 84 years old. She lives in the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. She, that is to say, she's a dedicated and godly woman. Verse 38, it came up at that very hour. She began to give thanks to God and speak to of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Apparently, there's a, a bit of a congregation here of people who are anticipating the consolation of Israel. Here it is. And she says, there he is. And they all praise God. So you see something of the heartbeat there, waiting for this one that's going to come and crush the serpent's head, set up the kingdom, provide relief for the people to be the true son of David, the king. And flip on over to chapter 3. All going somewhere here. Anticipation, anticipation, and then bam, right in the middle of chapter 3, Jesus' genealogy is outlined here. Kind of a strange spot for a genealogy, don't you think? You remember the genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down to Jesus. The genealogy in Luke starts with who? Jesus and works his way back to who? Adam. Very interesting. Verse 23, chapter 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That's the age of a Levitical priest. That means he's qualified. It's time to go. And you read through all those names and you can do that this afternoon. And just when you run to a word you can't pronounce, say it fast and everyone will believe you. Just kidding. Verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of who? Adam. You think, what do you think Luke's point is? Here's the last Adam. Here's the second man. Here he is. This Jesus goes back to Adam. Where Adam fails in the garden, here we have the last Adam coming to win victory. And there's no accident that he says the Son of God. And remember, there's no chapter breaks in the, in the original Greek New Testament. What's the very next verse? And Jesus, that son of Adam, what did he do? Full of the Holy Spirit, verse one, chapter one, chapter four, verse one. Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit where, into the wilderness, for forty days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. What do you think Luke's point is? Here he is. Here's the last Adam, the one that was promised, the one that's the true son of Eve. Here he is. He's Jesus the Messiah. Line goes back to him, affirmed by God through the Holy Spirit. This is the one. And here he is. And he is going to do battle. He is going to go out to the wilderness. Where, where Satan came to Adam, Jesus goes out to the wilderness. And he is going to go and he is going to deal with Satan. Paul picks us up in, in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the last Adam. Well, the second man. God deals with humanity on the basis of one of two Adams. Everybody is a descendant of Adam by natural generation. We all roll back. That's our great, 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 great granddaddy, right? And then there's a last Adam, which you may be united to spiritually if you trust in his person, in his work. Because God's going to judge you either on the basis of the first Adam or on the basis of the second Adam. That's why we say there's no other option. You flee from your sin and you run to Christ. So his, all of His righteous obedience is credited to you. You trust in Christ. That's what He does. And the rest of this, this book, the Gospel, the whole rest of the New Testament is the unfolding of this one central story that God has said from the beginning, the story of His redemption, whereby He goes and He destroys the works of the evil one and saves people from their sins. So that's what he's doing right here when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. He's putting a stake in the ground and he's saying this is the way in which I'm taking the kingdom back. He goes out into the wilderness and he's tilling the soil, if you will, and turning it back into a paradise. 
He goes and puts the stake down and says, I'm going to wrestle this kingdom from Satan. That's what he says literally in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. That means it's the right time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here he is. He's the king. And it's time. See, Adam was given a garden. And by his sin, he turned it into a desert. Now, Jesus is the last Adam. And he's gone into the desert. And by his obedience, he's turning it back into a garden again. And what do you see at the very end of the Bible? Revelation 22. The people of God dwelling with God where? In a garden. And there's no more curse. He's brought it full circle all the way around. This is why it is so important to understand that yes, He came to to be your Savior and to save you from your sins, but in the process of saving you from your sins, He's crushing the head of the evil one. And He's God's King. He's coming to save sinners. This very scene is the beginning of him putting his boot on the head or the neck of, ser- of the serpent. He comes to provide rest through deliverance. I love what John Henry Newman said in his famous hymn. He says, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's good. That's exactly right. Adam number two, Jesus, comes. Make sense? This is a lot. We're throwing a lot. And, I mean, this is a big deal. You should see the Bible this way. As God coming to save His people from their sins through the God-man, Jesus Christ. This will really help when you start looking at Him healing people and dealing with lepers and, and everything that He does going out into the wilderness on and on and on. It all ultimately is to do the work of God. So He is representing God on the one hand as the King and He's representing man on the other hand. He had to go for God and He had to go for man. If we're going to have a representative that doesn't fail, he better triumph over the evil one. If God's going to have a king that deserves to be called my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he better defeat the enemy. So we ask the question first, who sent him to the wilderness? God, the Spirit, right? Why did he go there? He went there to triumph over the devil. Now third, what's the significance to us? And this is where we'll end this morning. What's the significance to me as a Christian? You give me all this theological truth and Mark, Genesis, Revelation, all of this stuff. What is the, what, what is, does this big picture of the Bible include something relevant to me? Absolutely. Hopefully you're getting that already. We've got to come to esteem the work of Christ in the desert. It's the beginning of His work for us. So let's first ask the question, what is temptation? I'm going to uh, quote John Owen here because I think he gives a really good definition of temptation, and also because it's short. And if any of you guys ever read John Owen, you know that he's typically not very short. He's not very fond of the period, really likes the semicolon and the parentheses, right? Usually you need two cups of coffee to get through one paragraph. I mean, he's robust, but he's good. And I'll just quote him, and I, I, I massaged it a little bit, but it's from him. He says, temptation is anything that draws us from obedience that God requires and towards any sin. So at its heart then, temptation is someone or something that hijacks your obedience to God by distracting you and enticing you to sin. Now you might stop right there and say, that means it's anything outside of me. That's one aspect of temptation. But we can't stop there. Because Owen would even go on and he would quote James chapter 1 that shows that temptation comes out of the evil heart to draw us away from God. So it's not like we could say, hey, everybody, let's go move to a cabin in Montana. 
and everything's going to be fine and I'll never sin again because I'll just live in this cabin and everything will be good, right? Well, everything will be good and okay if you leave your heart in Omaha because that's the problem. You have a sinful heart, I have a sinful heart, and out of our heart is what draws us away ultimately from God. So Owen knew what the Bible would teach, that it's from within or from without that could tempt us. Some things can be good things and some things are good things and they become temptations to us. That's because good things, when united to our evil hearts, become a vehicle to draw us away from communion to God. Good stuff become great stuff and that becomes idolatry. And it draws us away from Him. Just, just, just think in terms of what you love to enjoy as a man or a woman as a ch- or as a child. Family. It's great. Wife, husband, children, extended family. Enjoy those relationships. But if they end up drawing you away from obedience to God, or if we use them in such a way that we are not obedient to God, then it becomes a temptation towards sin. Work. Work is a good thing. God gives it. But if you're obsessed with your work, work 120 hours a week, and ignore everybody else just to chase that money. It's an idol. It becomes tempting. Hobbies. Hobbies are great. But if hobbies are all you do and you don't work and you don't do what God has called you to do, then hobbies are bad. And they become temptations. Money, food, success, sex, power, all those things. Good things. The Bible doesn't say none none of those things are bad. But when united to our evil heart, if we take good things and make them ultimate things, we've just replaced God. That's called idolatry. So you've got to remember that your evil heart is attempting to latch onto things to take them and make them more than they are. So that's why it's temptation. See, the issue ultimately is that it's the enticement to disobedience, to not do what God calls us to do or to do what God calls us not to do. And it's in the context with enticing us to make something or someone else not to be our treasure, or to make God not to be our treasure instead of someone or something else. It's always, it's always about authority. It's always about supremacy and drawing us away from God. But you know, Christ had no sinful heart. So these things were coming to Him. These temptations were coming. And He's the full man and they're trying to draw Him away from God. But there's no connection. It's like Wi-Fi with no connection. There's no sinful heart in there. He's fully man, but there's no connection. Why? Because God's his treasure. See, God is perfect. God is his love. He's the one who says in John 8, 29, I always do that which is pleasing to my Father. See, theologians and people get wrapped up in, could Jesus have sinned or could he not have sinned? Well, I would say, no, he couldn't have sinned. But you missed the point. If you get hung up in that, the answer is he didn't sin. Tempted in all ways such as us, but what? Yet without sin. A good way to think about that, I don't, it's always dangerous when it's not in your notes, but think of Jesus if he had to swim across the ocean as a man. Think of that as his temptation. Swimming all the way across the ocean and trailing behind him is a, is a boat that could rescue him. That would be his divinity, if you will. If he failed, if he sinned, because he has a backstop, if you will, or or the boat to rescue and save him if he would have sinned. But he swam the whole way himself, perfectly himself, and never sinned. So he makes it to the other side flawlessly, so he could stay on the other end. I did it completely. Now you ask, could he have sinned or could he have not have sinned? That's not even the point. What's the point? He didn't. Make sense? Might be confusing. I don't know. I'm trying to, I understand the theological truth of it. He didn't sin. That's important. 
And you need a righteousness. You need a Savior who doesn't sin. And He didn't sin. That's why it's so important. Well, now as we wrap up here, notice that it says that Jesus was weak. That's what it means when it says that He was in the wilderness 40 days. By Himself, He was, even as it says in Matthew, He was fasting. He was at His weakest point. No food, 40 days alone in the wilderness. It says in, in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, that He was with the wild animals. Do you ever wonder why Mark's the only one to mention the wild animals? Luke doesn't mention wild animals. Mark leaves out all kinds of details, but he puts in wild animals. It's interesting, he was writing to Christians in Rome who were undergoing intense persecution, and one of the things that the persecutors would do to those who would not recount their faith is they would take and they would put dog skin over the the, the Christians as they would put them naked in the arena and put dog skin over them and put wild beasts in there that would go after the smell of these dogs and then devour the Christians. Pretty horrible, huh? And we get bent out of shape about health care. Putting them in the arena where they, if they will not recant their faith, they will be chewed to pieces by wild beasts. And here Mark says, I think, showing him, you know what, there was a Savior, your Savior, and he went into the wilderness not to deal with these earthly foes, but the ultimate foe, Satan himself. And he went there amid the wild animals, and he came out shining perfectly. So let them chomp, let them chew, let them devour. It doesn't matter. You're Christ, your inheritance. It all stands. Let it be. Let it go. It doesn't matter. He's victorious. He's the king. And that would be a great encouragement if you were about to be chewed up by animals. You might say, you know what? Christ has overcome. He went out with the wild animals. He crushed the head of the serpent. Go and do your duty. In due time, you'll be with him. That would be encouraging to me. He faced the best that Satan had, and still he didn't buckle. Let's close with Matthew's account. This will bring us to the end. We're still looking. What is the significance to me? What does this matter to me? Matthew chapter 4. This matters a lot to you, and it matters a lot to me if you're a Christian. You know, the one thing that Satan is trying to get him to abandon in this temptation at every turn? His humiliation. He continues to try to get Jesus to abandon his humiliation to take what is rightfully his. Very interesting to see the deceiver work. You say, well, what's the significance of this? The reason why it's significant is because at the end of his humiliation is what? It's a cross. And if you get the cross off the table then there's no king. And if there's no king, there's no defeat of the enemy. There's no salvation of sinners. What is he after? He knows he's doomed. He knows God's going to crush him. But if he can take all of us down with him, that would just make eternity happy for Satan. If he can crush you while being crushed, that would be great. So what is he doing here? Forgo your humiliation, Jesus. Forget this. Just take what is rightfully yours. In essence, who cares about those people? He's coming after us as He comes off after Christ. Forgo your humiliation. No cross, no king, no Savior. That's why when Peter says to Jesus, after Jesus says, I must go to the cross, Peter says, forbid it, Lord. What does he say? Get behind me who? Satan. Not that that's Satan, but you're thinking like Satan. And anytime you get the cross off the table, that's demonic and satanic. 
That's why I know who is ultimately leading churches that don't emphasize the cross. And probably writing a lot of Christian music these days. Get the cross on the table. It doesn't matter if it's in your, on your, on the front of your pulpit, on the front of your Bible, in your bulletin, in your church name. If he's not in your sermon and in the front of your face, then you're not a Christian. You're, you're a hack. You're demonically inspired. The cross is everything, right? First importance. And he says, I want to get that cross. Get away this humiliation. Look what he does. This is amazing. Verse three. Chapter 4, Matthew, verse 3. We'll go zoom through these and you can see this and it's very important to us as Christians. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. In other words, you have right, Jesus. You have rights. Remember, he's hungry. Fasting 40 days, he's hungry. He says, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Is it wrong to eat bread? No. Is it wrong for him at this time? Yes. Because he's fasting in obedience to God. He's doing what he's been called to do. So to go and to make these things bread like he'll do later in his ministry would be to... To forego his humiliation. Satan, in essence, says, take the edge off, Jesus. We're going to be here a while. Jesus says to him, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, according to Deuteronomy. It is written. It stands written. I trust God and his word. Where the last, where the first Adam failed by not trusting the word of God, the last Adam succeeds by trusting God's word. Then verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He said, basically, oh, Jesus, you know, God has said you're his beloved son. He loves you. He's well pleased with you. Go up on top of this and jump down. And you know God will rescue you because you're the special son. And you can just hear the condescension in his voice. He'll save you. He'll take care of you. And all the people, they will look and they will say, Oh, our Savior, hallelujah. And they'll come and worship you and everyone will be coming. You'll have the great kingdom that you want. That's what you want, don't you, Jesus? Forgo the what? The cross. And Jesus, in essence, is saying to him, Oh, you don't understand. My people will come to me. My glory will come to me, not by foregoing my humiliation, but what? by what? Through my humiliation. Very different, Satan. That's what he's getting at. And then finally, in verse... Eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all these I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Luke says they've been delivered to me. Now, that might not be much of a temptation to you, but it is if you've been promised to have the inheritance of the nation. Psalm 2 says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. He's basically taking Psalm 2 and putting it on his lap and say, if you're the son of God, take what is yours. I have it right here in my hand. I'm the king of this world. Don't you know, Jesus? Come and take it. It's all yours. And Jesus again is saying, no, I will get my kingdom not by foregoing my humiliation, but through the cross, through my humiliation. And Jesus has had enough of him. Verse 10, be gone, Satan. For you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. At every single turn, he was trying to get him to abandon his humiliation. And at every single turn, Jesus said what? No, no, no. I must go to the cross. I must go to the cross, because that's where I'm going to destroy you and save my people from their sins. This has everything to do with us. Furthermore, it has everything to do with us because he's the last Adam. You see him three times here. 
stand firm in the midst of temptation, not buckle in the midst of temptation. And you know that we, just like our forefather Adam, would buckle and buckle and buckle and continue to cave into temptation. But Jesus, over and over again, does not cave. And you say, what's the significance of that? The significance is, God's going to judge you if you're in Christ on the basis of Jesus' obedience, His righteousness. So His perfect obedience to the Father in the face of the accuser, the enemy of God, is your obedience if you're in Jesus Christ. So that means that tonight, because it's going to happen, you'll be tempted. If you're a Christian, you're going to be tempted and you're going to be accused. You're going to feel guilty and you're going to, you're going to begin to think about your sin and you're going to say, you know what? I need to, the devil is tempting me and, and I'm tempted by these things and I need to, I need to go and do these things and do these things. And the answer is not, I need to do, but you need to stop and say, Jesus did. It's Jesus' obedience. Guilt is a chauffeur that drives you back to Christ and say, look at his obedience. So you could rightly say, if you were talking to the devil, if this is what you do, talk to the devil. I don't personally do this, but I would preach to my heart. and say, the devil can list 50,000 more sins, which I could help him name. But it doesn't matter. Because every single one of them have been dunked in the ocean of Christ's love. Every single one is covered by the blood of Christ. They've all been nailed to the cross. They've all been, been, been dealt with by His wrath-satisfying death and His perfect acts of obedience, which are infinite and innumerable, have been charged to me. So that when God looks at me, He doesn't see a sinner. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. So you could really say, be gone, just like Jesus says. Because He can't accuse you. What does Romans 8 say? You guys are just studying it. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will condemn? It's God that justifies. Who will condemn? you got nothing. So what's the significance of this? This is Jesus earning your righteousness. So you see how devastating this is. If you take this passage and you say, okay, I'm going to deal with temptation. First thing, i got to know my Bible so I can quote it back at Satan and rely on myself. No. You're going to deal with temptation. What do you do? You run back to Jesus Christ who made God His perfect treasure. And you say, oh, thank You for Jesus Christ. See the infinite value of the the work of Christ. Thank You, Lord, for the obedience of Christ. You preach the Gospel to your heart. You show the treasure of Jesus Christ. And you love Him. In the midst of of the temptation, you look at it and say, what is there of value in it? Look at Christ. See, if you look inward to deal with temptation, you don't need a Savior. You're, You're your own Savior. If you look to Christ, you find a Savior that's valuable. It's all Christ. It's all Christ. See, many people deal with temptation. They say, I need to talk to a friend about it because a friend who's gone through the same things as me can identify with me. But Jesus, you know, He was tempted in these various ways. But He can't identify with me. Listen, friends, you don't need somebody to identify with you. You need someone to deliver you. Jesus is able to deliver you. He's crushed the evil one. He's the champion. Do you understand that? And by the way, He can't identify with you. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect tempted as we, yet without sin. He's been tempted every which way that we've been tempted. He is eligible and able to save. And we end here this morning with very encouraging words. Verse 13. Chapter 1, Mark. He's with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What type of angels do you think those were? Good angels or bad angels? Those are good angels. Who sends the good angels? God. That is to say that 
after this temptation. The angels coming and ministering to Jesus. And showing as what the rest of the book would show, that this is still God's man. He is still well pleased with him. And that's good news for you and me. Because God's pleasure with you and me is bound up in his pleasure with Jesus. So if Jesus is not well pleasing to the Father, then we got a big problem. But we come out of this and we say, yeah, he's still well pleasing to the Father. He's been tested. And he is, as Martin Luther says, the right man on our side. God is well pleased in Christ. And this should bring you joy. It should bring you joy not because these are just theological facts, but this should help you on Tuesday morning, on Thursday morning, on Saturday night. This is every day. Jesus Christ has earned your righteousness. He's taken your guilt. And He's satisfied God's wrath. What more do you need? I close with what I think is a fitting poem. It says, Man's first sin has been his last. Questioning God, we fell fast. But God's own Son has come at last to honor God and bring us back. Hear the song above Jordan's waters. It's the beloved Son whom God does honor. The last Adam who loves his Father brings back to God all those who've wandered. What then is required to such a one? Be humble and happy in Christ the Son. And that is our charge. Let's pray. What can we say, Father, but thanks be to you through Jesus Christ our Lord that there now is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So therefore we praise you through him. And we ask that you would remind us repeatedly today and throughout the week that Jesus Christ's work is successful and that he is, as Hebrews says, able to save to the uttermost. We have a Savior who is able. Refresh us with that this morning, Father. Draw hearts to make much of and to magnify Christ the Son. May we indeed be humbled by Him and happy in Him, for He indeed is worthy. In His name we pray. Amen.